a science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they felt And I just thought, well, it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true stories of how science has affected people's lives. We're on a break for the month of August, so we're rerunning some of the wonderful stories from early on when most of you weren't subscribers. Hope you enjoy them. This week's story is from David Carmel. The story was recorded in February 2011 at Pacific Standard in Brooklyn. The theme of that night was cognitive dissonance. I knew what I wanted to do with my life the moment Captain Kirk turned to Mr. Spock and said, Spock, you're the science officer. Figure it out. (laughs) I was six, and this was the first episode of Star Trek I'd ever seen. Spock and Kirk were stuck in some kind of time loop, which had transported them from the 23rd century uh, to the early 20th century, where they were imprisoned before long by Nazis. Sure enough, Spock rigged something up and and set them free, and something in me just clicked. And I wasn't quite sure what it was yet, so I I went and asked the ultimate authority on all things, my dad, what a scientist was exactly. And he said, and and I remember this because he used almost exactly the same words as Kirk, he said, scientists are people who try to figure out how the universe works. And I thought, yes! That's what I want to be. Of course, at the time, this was intertwined with being an astronaut and fighting Nazis, and I I could live with that. Spock became my hero. I didn't care for Captain Kirk's success with the ladies. I wanted Spock's analytical skills. That particular set of priorities has changed a little since then. It wasn't until several years later that I uh, figured out specifically which strange new worlds I'd be seeking out. When I was 18, I came across the book The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by Oliver Sacks. Um, The book recounts Sacks' experiences as a neurologist, treating people with strange and bizarre conditions, uh, usually but not always following a stroke that had deprived part of their brain from oxygen. Uh, so there was the story of uh, a man whose eyesight was fine, but who could not identify faces, sometimes mistaking them for, for different objects, like hats. And there was this other guy who didn't believe his arm was his own, even though he could clearly see it was attached to his own body. Um, and something in me clicked again, and it was the realization of how fascinating it is that a three-pound lump of matter in our skulls, through its activity, can create everything that we are and everything that we feel. And it struck me that trying to figure out how that works was a worthwhile pursuit. And that set me on a track that that led eventually to grad school and down the line to my coming to New York three years ago to take up a position as a research scientist at NYU. And then last year, my dad had a stroke. As strokes go, we got lucky. By the time I took the transatlantic flight home, uh, he was out of intensive care and in a rehabilitation unit. My brother met me at the airport, and, and we drove to the hospital where we met my mum. Now, my dad's never been a, an emotionally effusive person, but it was still sad the way when we walked into his room. He, he, 
He didn't show that he was happy to see me or acknowledge in any way that this was the first time he'd seen me in almost a year that, and that I'd flown in from overseas. He was conscious and he was, he was fairly coherent, but he seemed distracted and confused and a bit down. One good thing was that I could be there for my family. I was brain guy. I, 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 I was Spock. <laughs> I knew what questions to ask the doctors. I could interpret their answers for my family. Uh, and that felt good. And about a week later, the doctors decided that my dad would do best in a familiar environment. So we take him home, where he does indeed seem to be getting stronger. The, the stroke has left him with no paralysis. He's a, bit, he's a bit weak on his left side, but other than that, he's okay. Um, and after about a week, we think he's strong enough to take a shower on his own. So I help him prepare, and I, I start the water running, and I go to the living room. And after about a, moment, a minute, I hear him calling my name. So I rush in. And I find him standing there in his bathrobe. The water's running, and he says to me, I can't take a shower. The bottom two-thirds of my body are gone. That's my dad, the computer programmer. Not half, not a bit, two-thirds, because having a stroke is no reason to be numerically imprecise. <laughs> I look at him, and I look at his two legs sticking out the bottom of his bathrobe, and he sees me looking, and he says, well, not gone exactly, just different. And then he proceeds to tell me how the arrangement of his limbs has some, somehow been altered. And, and he starts with his right leg, which he says starts normally at the foot, and then goes up to his knee. And then when it goes further up, instead of connecting to his pelvis, it continues to go up and past his shoulder and around to where it connects with his chest, which then in turn connects to his arms, which then connect to his left leg. And everything past the shoulder is happening above his head which is okay, but makes it kind of hard to take a shower. And I'm standing there, and I'm thinking, holy shit. And then I can't help thinking, cool. <laughs> you see, there is a representation of the body in the brain. It's called the homunculus. There are actually several homunculi. There's, there's one for the sense of touch. There's one for motion. There's one for proprioception, uh, the sense of where your limbs are at any given time so that you can balance properly. And the homunculus is, is plastic, meaning it can change over time through experience. For example, the representation of the fingers is, is larger in pianists. But I've never heard of a complete remapping, a complete rearrangement of the body representation following a stroke. And this would make a fascinating case study. <laughs> and I start thinking of all the various tests one could do to, to verify and to quantify the extent of this remapping. And I start also thinking about how we could maybe correlate the symptoms with the lesions that one can see in my dad's MRI. And I can't help rushing forward and thinking about the eventual scientific publication and how cool it would be to make my dad, who never finished high school, a co-author. And just then, my dad says, very matter-of-factly, well, I'm peeing. <laughs> and I look, and sure enough, there's a large wet stain forming on the front of his bathrobe. And as we both look helplessly, I feel embarrassed for him and ashamed of my own train of thought. Later that night, I decide to do some Oliver Sacks-style testing. And, and I, I sit my dad down, and I say, Dad, look, I'm going to touch your right foot. Do you see that? And he says, yes. And I say, OK, I'm going to work my way up to your knee, and now up your thigh. And see, it does connect to the pelvis, doesn't it? And he nods. And I go through the rest of his body and, and show him how everything is arranged normally. And he keeps nodding, but I can see he's not convinced. He thinks there's something fishy going on. At night, when he goes to sleep, he builds a big barrier out of pillows at the edge of his bed. 
And when I ask him why, he says that now that his body's rearranged and all chain-like, he's, he's afraid it's going to plop to the floor while he sleeps. And later that night, I go to the computer and I make a list of all the symptoms he described and everything I can think of that might be worthwhile testing. And I keep updating this list over the next week or so. And about a week later, he's in the shower, which he has been able to negotiate for the last few days, and he calls me again. And I rush in, but this time he's smiling. And he says, you were right. My body's back to normal. I don't know what I was thinking. It's all below my head again. And I'm mostly very relieved. <laughs> mostly. And that night I delete the list. The following Thursday, it's dinner time. My brother and I and my mum and dad are sitting around the dinner table. And my brother makes a comment about the 1940s, and that prompts my dad to start reminiscing. And he tells us all about his childhood, how he was born in Egypt and immigrated to Israel at the age of 10, and eventually became a military codebreaker and had a long, illustrious career doing that. Now, my dad was born in Jerusalem, and he did fight in two wars on the Israeli side, but he was an anti-aircraft gunner. He never had anything to do with codes or with breaking them, and to the best of my knowledge, he's never been to Egypt. And I start thinking again. People with memory problems, with amnesias, often confabulate, which is a fancy word for making things up. We need this coherence in our own narrative, our own life story. And I'm thinking, is my dad amnesic? And my brother goes, Dad, you're from Jerusalem. And he thinks for a minute and he goes, yeah, that's true too. <laughs> and now I'm really fascinated. Has something gone wrong with my dad's memory or is it the ability to distinguish memory from fantasy that's broken down? And again, I start thinking of what could be done to examine this. But this time I stop. And I don't make a list. Because it's still fascinating, but it's, it's no longer cool. And this happens a few more times over the next few days, and then it also stops. The thing about choosing to live on a different continent from your family is that it sharpens the distinction between when you're there and when you're not. And when you're there, your own life gets left behind. And after about a month, I need to get back to mine. I've done everything I could to help with my dad's rehabilitation routine. We've set up physical therapy and occupational therapy and a nurse who comes by the house. And only time will tell how much and how quickly my dad will improve further. And as I make the arrangements to go back to New York, I'm feeling guilty about the burden I'm leaving with my mum and brother, my brother who's the real hero in all of this and whose only bad move has been the choice to live within driving distance from my parents. And I feel disappointed in, in what I've accomplished here because I haven't figured anything out and I haven't vanquished any Nazis and I really haven't been much of a Spock. It's about a month later and I'm talking to my brother on the phone and he's telling me about how the, the daily grind is really taking its toll on our mum, who's still holding a demanding job. And how even with the help that he can offer, my dad just might not be getting the best care he could. And we get to talking about the unpleasant reality that we might need to consider that my dad might be better off in a care facility. And just then, my, my dad wanders into the room that my brother's in. So my brother switches to speakerphone, and I hear him as he gently fills my dad in about what we're talking about. And he says, Dad, you know we love you, and we want what's best for you, and we need to consider all the options. And there's a long silence, 
which which isn't surprising. My dad has always driven us crazy because he has to find exactly the right words. But then when he speaks, his voice for the first time in a long time sounds like his pre-stroke voice. And he says, I understand. I'm having a moment of clarity. And I want you to know that I love you all very much. And I know that you love me. And I trust you. And for the first time since all this began, I start to cry. There is nothing he could have said that would have been any cooler. That was David Carmel. David is a cognitive neuroscientist who spends his days trying to figure out how the brain creates consciousness and his nights trying to remember why he ever thought he could accomplish it. His ideas on the brain and mind have appeared in Scientific American Mind and on fivebooks.com. For more science stories, take a look at storycollider.org, where we have our magazine, archives of the podcast, and upcoming events. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, and Aaron Barker. The podcast is produced by Rose Evelith. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, Josh McCall, Raffaella Benin, and Sarah Mandalare. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Pacific Standard for hosting the show, and to Summer for almost being over. Thanks for listening. <laughs>